The BBC has put out some absolute bangers in their day. From cultural touchstones like I, Claudius from 1976, to lesser-known gems like the Ivanhoe miniseries they co-produced with A&E in 1997. Back when A&E wasn't just known for reruns of Dog the Bounty Hunter spinoffs, the British Broadcasting Corporation has made a name for themselves with high-talent productions with a seemingly low production value. I still claim their six-hour-long Pride and Prejudice is one of my all-time favorite films, and despite its runtime, it's probably among the movies I've watched the most. I wore out my VHS copy that we taped off television, then went on to wear out the VHS box set that I got to replace it and the DVD I got to replace that, before obtaining my current copy on Blu-ray. Now I'm just holding out for that sweet, sweet 4K remaster, which I'm sure is never coming because I'm probably the only one waiting for it. All this by way of saying I'm no stranger to the charms of lo-fi British television. The acting is great, the costumes slap, and the writing is usually top-notch. It's the kind of all-steak-and-no-sizzle artistic paradigm I can really get behind. It doesn't need a lot of flash. Flash would just ruin it. This high-quality, low-value aesthetic is probably part of the reason these productions have such staying power. It gives them a sense of timelessness and theatricality that holds up long after their release, especially with their period adaptations. But does the same magic work for a more contemporary story? Today's film is not a household name like it was when it first came out in 1988, which is in a way fitting because it depicts a war that isn't exactly a household name anymore either. It's the true story of Robert Lawrence, a British officer grievously wounded on Mount Tumbledown during the Falklands War, who must then learn to function physically and intellectually through a long and arduous recovery. It might be a stretch to call this a forgotten gem, even though, in true BBC form, it features some strong performances and some sharp dialogue, but it certainly has been mostly forgotten. It's really only available to watch on YouTube in what looks to be a VHS transfer, and despite the BAFTA-nominated performance from future Oscar winner Colin Firth, and a supporting cast that includes Pete Postlethwaite and Ron Weasley's dad, it looks like no special edition Blu-ray is likely to be forthcoming. And it isn't very hard to see why. It's a lot rougher around the edges than most of its better-known peers. Some of the artistic choices would likely work better on stage than on screen, and the editing is so chaotic you may need to watch it twice just to understand what's going on, and not in a good, usual suspects kind of way. But if you can scratch below the surface of its admittedly unpolished exterior, it's a film that gives a lot of insight to a war that most of us, especially outside of Britain or Argentina, don't even remember happening. War is hell. People make films about it, and we love to talk about them. So come careening down country lanes in a vintage convertible to tell a harrowing war story and confusing flashbacks to a family you've ostensibly never met before, with a marine veteran, a film critic, and a theater director, as we discuss this strangely constructed, oddly controversial, BBC made-for-TV movie from 1988, Tumble Down. <laughs> Call it in. It's danger close. Welcome back to Danger Close, a war film podcast. 
My name is Dan, and I'm here with my partners. Katie. And Liam. Today we're here to talk about a 1988 film about the Falklands War between Great Britain and Argentina called Tumbledown. This was originally a BBC TV play, I think. And teleplay. Then, yeah, teleplay. And then they made it into a TV movie with, a, I guess, a decent budget for what it was going for. About a million pounds in, in 1987 money. That's pretty decent. And there you go. So I should hand it off to Katie with our mission briefing before I get carried away. Closely based on the experiences of Lieutenant Robert Lawrence, Tumbledown was a BBC production that spawned a lot of controversy at the time of its release. The incredibly short-lived war had ended about seven years prior to this film's premiere, and Lawrence was heavily involved in the creation of the film, and today it still stands as being an accurate depiction of what he went through, not just overseas, but also at the hands of the British government. During the Battle of Mount Tumbledown, which took place just hours before the surrender of the Argentinian forces, Lieutenant Lawrence led his men through hell and several enemy troops to the top of the mountain. While there, he is shot in the head by a sniper, losing half his brain, but somehow miraculously surviving, although partially paralyzed on his left side. He goes through a grueling and needlessly bureaucratic recovery process and finds himself shunned and eventually dragged through the proverbial mud by the Ministry of Defense in response to his open criticism of the war and how its soldiers were treated afterwards. The Tory government, which had fairly recently retained its power in part due to the nationalistic sentiments after the Falklands War, was vocal about its dislike for this film. At one point, it was literally debated in Parliament whether or not the BBC was using Tumbledown to make a political statement, something it is expressly forbidden from doing. Finding film criticism of this was really hard. It was not reviewed anywhere outside the UK, and it eventually led me to the UK's National Archives, which had straight-up press clippings folder that was something like 150 pages long, so I didn't read all of it. And what I found there was actually fairly positive, with praise given to the story that it's telling and especially Colin Firth's acting. It premiered to an audience of 10 million viewers and is still talked about today as a good representation of what Sojo's experienced in that conflict. I didn't know much about the Falklands going into this beyond the basics. And this film is very much a product of its time in that it is meant for viewers who are very, very aware of the circumstances surrounding it. So had either of you heard of this film before we talked about it? And what was your initial impression, like first 15 minutes into the film? So, as you know, we have a plethora of World War One, World War Two, and Vietnam films to pick from when we're choosing films for Danger Close. So... We try hard to mix things up and every set of four or five films at least have one that's about an obscure conflict, a conflict that's not covered as much, or one that people don't know about as much. I'm sure that we'll cover, you know, the War of 1812 at some point. We haven't done the French and Indian Wars yet. There's lots of things we haven't covered yet that we have to mix in. And I don't know, for some reason, the Falklands came to my mind. Uh, this happened the year before I was born. But I do have a vague memory. Maybe my dad used to talk about it when I was younger. Or maybe I read about some of the aerial combat in one of his like aircraft encyclopedias that I used to read when I was a kid because he had tons of those. But this stuck out as one that we haven't covered. I feel like Americans know very little about, especially Americans who are 
younger than us, but again, most of us, I think Liam might have been alive during this conflict, but he was a wee baby. So in looking into it, uh, Tumbledown came up and an ungentlemanly act came up as sort of the two most famous films that cover the Falklands War. There are some other ones. There is an Argentinian film, but they were rated so poorly that I was like, okay, let me not start with like the crappiest film ever about this. Let me try and do something that's at least somewhat popular and people have seen, etc. Fighting on Film, the other podcast that we mentioned on here before, uh, did a great episode on an ungentlemanly act where they actually had the director and two of the principal actors um, in like a roundtable conversation with them. Really great episode. I encourage you to go listen to it. It talks about the making of it, uh, how dangerous filming on the Falklands was, you know, penguins, all kinds of stuff. But I think I wanted to do something that hadn't been covered by other podcasts, which this had not from what I could see. And so that's why I picked this one. We'll do an ungentlemanly act eventually. And that'll be another good episode on this conflict. Um, I'm also going to cover some of the history later, because as we'll surely find out, this film does not give you a lot of context on the history or what was going on with this conflict. It's very subjective and very much about this one lieutenant's experience i have to like force myself to say lieutenant for the british it's not that i don't know that's how you guys say it it's just we're used to saying lieutenant because we're american that's how it is so that's what i knew going into it uh to answer katie's question my first 30 minutes i was kind of horrified and not the way you might normally be horrified at a war film because of gruesome violence or you know traumatic scenes but because the first act of this film felt so disjointed that I barely understood what in the hell was going on. YouTube also did not provide any closed captioning. So some of the dialogue was really difficult for me to understand, especially post-traumatic injury Colin Firth, who is doing a great job of talking like someone who has a traumatic brain injury. That's a bit difficult to understand, especially to a non-British viewer. So I was a little terrified at first because I was like, oh man, I have no idea what's going on. The audience is going to be confused by this. And I don't know if we can actually make a good episode about this film. So I almost texted Liam and Kate and I was like, we have to scrap this. We have to pick a different film. We have to try and do an ungentleman in the act. Or, you know, I was like backpedaling almost. And then after the first half hour, the film became more coherent. I was following the plot more. And in the next several hours when I did my research, Understanding more of the context, I kind of understood what time period this was a product of and why it was made the way that it was made. So my feelings towards this became more positive the deeper I dug into it, but that was not my initial feeling. So that's where I was coming from. Liam? I had never heard of this film before you picked it. And my experience with the Falklands War is extremely extremely limited i hadn't heard of it the first time i heard of it was from an eddie izzard bit hmm. from uh the stand-up special dress to kill from the late 90s was the the first time that i'd heard of it eddie izzard strikes again she's on a roll so after the second world war all the you know the world was going come on give these colonies back come on europe off you go and and in britain we go well we haven't got any colonies <laughs> What's that behind your back, Britain? Oh, it's India and a number of other countries. <laughs> Come on, Britain, give them back. Oh, all right. One goes there, one goes there, one goes there, India goes there. Sorry about the massacres. 
Falkland Islands go, oh no, we keep the Falkland Islands and we're going to keep them for strategic sheep purposes. <laughs> What's all that about then? Well, we might need to attack Antarctica with sheep at some point. That was my introduction to the Falklands War. It's a good introduction. Yeah, I mean, gave me about as much context as this movie did. There's no sheep in this movie, though, so even less. Yeah, no, very, very few sheep. <laughs> At least I knew there were sheep in uh, <laughs> from the Eddie Izzard joke. Yeah, so this movie, man. So here's the thing is that I, I like a lot of like really old movies, like really, really old movies. And I know that about myself. I think the audience knows that, too, at this point. But I also know that, you know, I was raised on old movies, so I don't know why I don't know why other people wouldn't like them because I've been watching them for so long that it it doesn't seem out of place for me. Same. A British made for television film from the 80s is not a film quality or a style that I grew up watching. So I have to think that my initial reaction to this as a film is probably similar to somebody coming to a movie that was mainstream Hollywood in the 1930s that I grew up watching that they're like, why is everybody fucking talking like this? Or like, why is the camera doing that? Why is this in black and white? Like, you know, things like that. So I was, I, really wanted to put in a concerted effort to not shit on this movie when I was watching it. It makes it difficult. Yes. But there are some good things going on in the movie. The editing is not one of them. I agree. It's going to be one of our most restrained episodes, I think. (laughs) I mean, I'll put on my shit and pants at some point. It's a product of its time. Lawrence. Lieutenant, I'm totally gonna screw that up, folks. I apologize. Oh, it's fine. I at least I just wanted to like let our UK listeners know that like we know it's just that we don't do it because it's hard. <laughs> Lawrence was 27 when he was involved in the making of this film, mm-hmm. so that gives you some perspective on how fresh this whole thing was, especially for him and the folks at home who were watching it who participated in in this war effort. I can imagine how if you are watching something like that in that context, it is going to mean a hell of a lot. And not that I was able to find too much, but a lot of the current stuff that I read, uh, because we came up on, you know, the 25th anniversary, seemed like this movie was still viewed so not necessarily positively, but as meaningful, I guess. So... I, too, had that exact reaction. The first, I would say the first hour I was watching, I was like, oh, my God. Okay, what's happening? Why are people doing this? Why is he kind of paralyzed in this scene, but more paralyzed in this other scene? Like, is this, what the fuck is going on here? I was confused by his driving. That's, uh, in the yeah. Beginning. Like, he's hauling ass like a bat out of hell. Like, right? <laughs> like, he's in a fucking meatloaf song. And then he's just like, oh, yeah, but I can't use, like, this leg or this arm or this side of my face. And I'm just like, how were you driving like that, dude? Exactly. Exactly. So it's just, and yeah, there's just so much conflicting stuff going on and it is not something you expect as someone who has watched quite a bit of masterpiece theater. And I have seen that seventies pole dark and, and loved it. If you want real 
BBC melodrama about a war vet. This was only seven years before Pride and Prejudice. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is a this is an interesting time in the BBC, and it's not something you expect from them. You know, they're pretty straightforward. We are telling, you know, literature stories or documentaries or fictionalized dramatic stories often. And it's like, this is a lot of time jumping. Feeling it's like, did Christopher Nolan give you the first edit on this? Because that's kind of what it feels like. Then the second half, it starts to coalesce into becoming something that makes sense and is more clear about what its goals are and especially what time frame you're in. Because... I think for me, that was the biggest lack is because I'm like, when and where are we? So I'm interested to see how we're going to talk about it, because the true story behind all of this is so fucking heartbreaking. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's funny. I think there are probably we can each come up with several instances of films where there were either unnecessary timestamps in a film or too specific timestamps in a film where I'm like, just tell me it's spring of 1917. I don't give a shit what day it is. Don't don't let yeah. the tank pedants get the best of you. You know, like that happened last episode and just like little things like that, where oftentimes you're told too much about the timeline. In this one, I was like, man, a couple of timestamps would have really saved a lot of confusion. <laughs> like, again, it took me so long to figure out whether the initial scene where they drive into the English countryside is before or after the war. Like, eventually I figured it out, but I was like, I am right. not sure what the hell is happening. At first, I did think it was prior. Like, I was like, oh, so too. these are like the halcyon, carefree, driving your driving your car through the countryside sort of days before you went and got your, your head shut off. Right. But then I learned relatively quickly that you could trace it by Colin Firth's hair. Hmm. So with the state of Colin Firth's hair, let that be your your sundial. Okay. Right. He has this fabulous, weird, odd head of hair in the beginning. It's kind of great. And it's like windswept and like sort of sandy. And I'm like, wow, look at Colin Firth. He's looking pretty good. It's a real beach look. Yeah. Surfer dude Colin Firth. Well, and I'll say uh, the one main interview that's available of of Lawrence being interviewed after He's a really good looking guy and has kind of a little bit longer hair than Colin Firth. But I, I could see that's what they were going for was his sort of mid 90s look that the actual sort of retired. I think he was a captain eventually, but the retired soldier had. But yeah, I did not put that together at first. His hair was so nice. I thought this was his pre-injury head. I'm going to take advantage and do a bit of the history of the Falklands War in general for this film. We won't have to cover as much of it when we do other films on the period. And of course, we'll throw this all up on the surplus ordinance. There's a lot of this stuff I'm not going to read because we got some really detailed and really great research. But I think now's a good time to give all the listeners some context that they're definitely not going to get from this film, which helped me understand everything a little bit better. So I'm going to mix in a little bit of Dennis Myers research here. He covered the British side of the conflict and the history while... Bill Fisher, our PhD in Latin American studies, covered the Argentine side of the conflict, and they both kind of cover what was going on politically in each country that's, that led to this conflict and explains a lot of that. But I'm going to do a brief overview. So if you pull up a map and go look at the very southern tip of Argentina, not that far from Antarctica, to be honest, uh, to the east, about 480 kilometers east of the coast of Argentina in the South Atlantic. 
you will find the Falkland Islands, or Islas Malvinas in Spanish as the Argentines refer to them. They consist of two main islands, East Falkland and West Falkland, and about 700 islets with a total land area nearly the size of the U.S. state of Connecticut, about 4,700 square miles or 12,000 square kilometers-ish. Ranges of rocky-topped hills reaching up to 2,300 feet run east to west across the northern parts of the two main islands. The Falklands have over 1,000 miles of coastline, with many drowned river valleys that form protected harbors. Besides the hills, the inland terrain has small rivers and broad, peat-covered valleys. There are no natural trees. Vegetation consists of just low and dense grasslands. The population of the Falkland Islands at the time of the war was over 1,800 inhabitants, with about 70% of them living in Stanley, the capital. Sheep farming was and is the main economic activity, with wool sent to Great Britain being the leading land-based export. The Falkland Islands were variously claimed by Britain and Spain in the 18th century. In the early 19th century, when Buenos Aires was the new capital of a confederation called United Provinces of the Rio de la Plata, the islands were claimed by an agent of the government in Buenos Aires. However, nothing very substantial or permanent was established there apart from some fishing operations. In 1831, an American ship dissolved the Buenos Aires-linked government of the islands, and the next year the British retook possession. Subsequent governments in Buenos Aires would occasionally protest this, but it never amounted to much. Now, again, I'm not going to go into this in a lot of detail, but you can read it for yourself. Post-World War II, the, the political situation in Argentina was pretty tumultuous with several different military dictators and suppression of the citizens there, and a lot of that going on, anti-communist fighting, etc. 1976 to 1979 was the height of the Dirty War in Argentina, where leftist rebel groups fought back at first for about nine months or so, but were seriously degraded by overwhelming opposition. And in this period, you have a lot of kidnappings of people and torture. And in the end, leading up to right before the Falklands War, you had mothers and grandmothers protesting in the streets, wanting to know where their children were, because these political dissidents were often kidnapped by the government, tied up, tortured, and then dumped it in the Atlantic. So their families never even got their bodies back. So that's just a taste of what was going on in Argentina politically. Despite a program of economic liberalization or pro-free market reforms, the Argentine military junta saw massive inflation and increase of foreign debt during the late 70s and early 80s. There was a wave of bank failures in 1980 that made the regime seem incompetent from a financial standpoint. In 1981, General Videla handed the presidency over to Army General Roberto Viola, who did not really have the support of other high-ranking officers, particularly because Viola planned to do some political liberalization. He was forced out after only a few months and was replaced by General Leopoldo Galtieri, who was perhaps the hardest of hardliners. He made it clear there would be no political liberalization and would go back to full authoritarian control by the armed forces. Galtieri's hard right-wing stance was welcomed by the new presidential administration of Ronald Reagan in the U.S. Remember, this is a time where we were just super scared of communism rising up anywhere, and so we often, to put it simply, propped up a lot of bad people simply because they were anti-communist in their own countries. Galtieri traveled to the White House twice in 1981, and he promised to help the USA with its efforts against the left-wing Sandinista government in Nicaragua. 
Argentine military assets were sent to work with U.S. intelligence in El Salvador, Guatemala, and Honduras, where they taught the methods of the Dirty War to Contras, Nicaraguan and soldiers of fortune fighting against the Sandinistas. But the Argentine economy continued to do very poorly, so Galtieri decided to wag the dog by beginning a military takeover of the Malvinas Islands. You'll hear a similar theme in terms of Margaret Thatcher and why she decided to get involved in this war. As you can find often in history, the government can sometimes do that, or at least partial reason for doing that is to distract the people from domestic problems at home. The Argentine military regime had been making noise in the international circle since 1976 about the Falkland issue, but the British just ignored this. In 1981, the British decided to reduce the number of military assets in the South Atlantic, so the Argentine junta took this as a sign that the Falklands would be easy pickings. The operation was planned principally by Navy Admiral Jorge Anaya, and the first Argentine troops landed in the Falklands on April 2, 1982. Side note, my own personal opinion is if the Falklands were uninhabited and all these semi-British citizens weren't there and it was just a bunch of peat moss and sheep, I don't think that the British would have fought for the Falklands. Really, this fight was about the people, the citizens that lived on the Falklands, not that much about territory, at least at this point in the political stage. The Falklands War began on 2nd April 1982 with amphibious landings by Argentine Marines that quickly overwhelmed a small British garrison of 68 Marines, 11 naval personnel, and 23 volunteers of the Falkland Islands Defense Force. April 5th, the British government dispatched a naval task force to retake the islands. This incident is probably covered in more detail in An Ungentlemanly Act. Dennis does a great breakdown of the details of naval operations and air combat between both sides. This was a surprisingly, I don't want to say evenly matched war, but the British lost several ships that were sunk. They lost several aircraft. People died on both sides. It was it was not exactly like the U.S. invading Iraq for the first time, for example, um, because both countries were distant from their supply lines. But Argentina had the main advantage of being closer to theirs. The British, if you think about it, were 8,000 miles away from their homeland. It was surprising how many losses the British actually took. Again, you can read more about this in detail if you go to our website later. After the Argentine forces surrendered, Stanley's infrastructure, electricity, Water and sanitation systems were overwhelmed by the demands placed on it to accommodate and process thousands of cold, weary, hungry British soldiers and the Argentine prisoners of war. This suffering was dubbed Galtieri's Revenge. The situation for Great Britain after the war was that with the victory, Margaret Thatcher's popularity that had been lagging recovered, and the popularity of her conservative government skyrocketed, as Katie mentioned a little bit earlier. It went on to win the following year's general election by a landslide. The war was a psychological boost for Britain that had been languishing in a post-colonial malaise. The Falklands enjoyed a period of post-war prosperity buoyed by record levels of aid money from Britain. Residents were granted full British citizenship. However, the war didn't finally resolve the dispute over the competing claims to the islands. The disagreement continues, even though in a 2013 referendum, 99.8% of islanders voted to remain British. There were three individuals that were the dissenting vote there. That's the end of the history. Here's a little bit of background on Robert Lawrence. 
Robert Lawrence was born in 1960 into a family with a history of military service. His brother, father, and grandfather had all been in the military. After attending boarding schools, he joined the Army and ultimately graduated from the Royal Military Academy Sandhurst. He was then commissioned as a second lieutenant into the Scots Guards in 1979. He was promoted to lieutenant in 1981. On June 14th, Lawrence led two platoons of the 2nd Battalion Scots Guards along the west flank towards enemy positions atop Mount Tumbledown. In a fierce firefight, Lawrence shot 14 Argentinians before running out of ammunition. He continued the attack, stabbing three more with his bayonet. At the pinnacle of Tumbledown, Lawrence was struck by a round that passed through the rear of his skull and exited at his hairline above his right eye. Ninety minutes later, the Argentinian garrison in Stanley surrendered. Because of the severity of the wound that was assumed to be mortal, he waited hours for evacuation from Tumbledown and waited more hours for treatment at a hospital. Asked about this years later, he said he bore no ill will to the medical personnel as it was logical to assume his wound was fatal and that it made more sense to treat less severely wounded soldiers first. The wound destroyed over 40% of his brain and caused lifelong paralysis down one side of his body. He was awarded the Military Cross in October 1982 and was discharged in 1983. He ran afoul of the Army and the Ministry of Defense when he openly criticized the way the military establishment stoked patriotic fervor after the war while turning a blind eye to the unglamorous brutality and consequences of the war. He later worked in the film industry and eventually established Global Adventure Plus, a project to help rehabilitate British ex-servicemen. He co-authored the book, When the Fighting is Over, a personal story of the battle for Tumbledown Mountain and its aftermath that was adapted into the BBC television play and later film Tumbledown in 1988. Sounds good. We should talk about that movie sometime. Maybe right now. So... I don't think that it's possible to do a blow-by-blow recap of something like this because, like I said, it is so incredibly time-shifty. It is almost committed to its lack of a narrative, of a through-line narrative in this. And it's very frustrating, and I'm not quite sure why they felt like they needed to do it that way, but they definitely did. So... I do have a theory about this, which came to me again later after reading a bit more about the film and kind of, you know, watching documentaries about the the conflict. I feel like they made a decision here to make this film extremely subjective from Lawrence's position. And so what this film does is at times it's telling you the story from the memories and perspective of a person who has had a lot of serious brain damage and is, again, literally missing 40-something percent of his brain, which I think explains a few things. So, so there are times when he's in the hospital bed. This is after he's been injured. He's recovering from his traumatic brain injury. He's, you know, trying to learn how to walk again, etc., and he often has nightmares where he's thinking back to his time on the island. And that wasn't 100% clear at first. Mm-hmm. The first one is, hand, and you know, the lighting is super. It's very theatrical. It, like those, yeah, the, the, the points were like, I think there's one where there's like a bagpiper. And then there's like just him standing like on the mountain and it's backlit. And it's, yeah. it looks like, you know, when you said it was a, a teleplate. 
if this were a play, the scene would be happening downstage, but then upstage lights would come up on like a soldier or a guy playing the bagpipes. And it would probably have an interesting impact, but it didn't, the way they did it in the film didn't quite translate. Yeah, no, it does not. But I'm sorry, I I didn't mean to interrupt you there. No, no, that's a great point, actually. And I think in a play, the scenes could be just representing a real memory or just representing an actual flashback, as opposed to it becomes clear later in the film that we're talking about a dream slash a nightmare. You know, these are thoughts that he's having while he's sleeping. And so the first one that I remember is him kind of heroically at the bow of like an amphibious landing vehicle with this like very theatrical and fake looking lighting. And like he's holding his rifle. I think he may even have his bayonet mounted. There's like patriotic music playing in the background. I'm like, what the hell? What in the actual fuck is going on right now? But again, later I sort of viewed these scenes as... Yeah, he's having memories of kind of what was going through his head before he got to this war as a young 22-year-old or whatever he was. Right, this is what he envisions that service will be like. Exactly. And, you know, even the scenes like Liam's talking about where you see him at the top of the mountain later and, you know, the mist is very theatrical, like it very obviously looks like kind of dry ice mist. Mm -hmm. The hazer is malfunctioning again and it turns into a fog machine. Classic live theater shit. Right. Yeah. The moon is like (laughs) huge, a larger diameter than the entire screen behind him. And he's backlit with it, you know? And then there's in one of those scenes, which they show you several, he starts to like trot with his rifle and his big old pack in the back. And it's very obvious he's on a treadmill because he's running, but he's not going anywhere. Like he's just running in place. Yep. It took me so long to figure out what in the hell they were actually trying to do here. But then I started to, then eventually they intersperse it with scenes of him sleeping or scenes of him waking up. And so it's like, oh, okay, these are dreams that he's having. So I was a little more forgiving of those scenes later when I understood what they were doing. But that's kind of the theme of a lot of the way they did this film is like later, once I understood where the characters were at in earlier scenes, I was a little more lenient towards the way they chose to display it. Like, I still didn't like the choice that they made, but at least I understood where they were coming from. Man, the editing in this movie really does suck. And it does not help that we watched it on YouTube that was very obviously like pulled off of somebody's like BBC VHS tape from like probably the 80s. Sure. No, as far as like the film quality goes, like the, the picture quality. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about like the way this movie was put together, mm-hmm. you oh, know, cause God. it's not like, it's not like it starts confusing and then makes more sense as you come to like some sort of aha moment about the plot, you know, this isn't a mystery, but they, for some reason, put it together almost like it was. Mm-hmm. And I think part of the problem is they wanted to build in why they, why they told it in this disjointed manner is they wanted to build so that you see the actual gunshot happen at the end Mm -hmm. as the climax of the film Mm -hmm. and use that as kind of like the high point of action. The thing that we've all been wanting to see this whole time, except it doesn't really, the narrative itself doesn't support this, this structure of storytelling. No, it doesn't support him as a character. And that's one of the most, frustrating things about the movie's choice to whiffle waffle about this kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think this is something that 
like you 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 get a much a much more sympathetic portrayal of this character if you tell it in a in a structured way mm-hmm. that is like chronological so like you meet him I'm sure maybe he's got a he gets drunk with his buddy at the bar. He's a little fatalistic. He's got this girlfriend, yada, 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 goes to war, gets shot in the fucking head and his brains fall out. They put his brains back in and they like make sure he's alive. He survives miraculously. And then it's about this long, this long recovery time that is in itself almost as traumatic as the, the event itself. The recovery time had as big an impact on him as the thing that he was recovering from. Yeah, his interactions with the British government are just painful. Mm-hmm. I, I think that gives you a better understanding of him as a character. I think that gives you a better a window into what he was thinking and, and more understanding about his attitudes coming out of it. Yeah, I mean, I think you nailed it when... I think part of what you're saying is that the choices in editing and structure of the story here and the order in which events are told makes it more difficult to empathize with the character. Whereas if you'd seen a little bit of what he'd gone through, because I agree, I disagree with the choice to make the climax, the battle in which he was injured. I would have much rather seen a less, I don't know, less experimental and more traditional approach to the story where it's like, He's drinking with his friends. He just got out of the military academy. And then like the Argentinians invade the Falklands. And he's like, all right, let's have some pints. We're like finally going to do what we were trained for. And we're going to war, you know, and then you have this buildup. He says bye to his girlfriend. You have this crazy long boat trip all the way down to, again, almost Antarctica to go like actually join this battle. Right. And, you know, you, you look at interviews with a lot of these soldiers and they were like, I wouldn't know where the Falklands were, they really had no idea where they were even going. This place is 8,000 miles away. Like that cannot be underemphasized. Yeah, it took them as long to get there as it took them to fight the war. And that's the other thing, right? We're talking about this very specific conflict with this very specific context, but just like any other war story, there are universal concepts here that would apply to any of these situations, right? Young men doing the training, you know, running around, they're got these impeccable uniforms. They're part of some unit that has this great history and esprit de corps, et cetera. And then they get into their first conflict and all of a sudden they're like, oh shit, this is like not what I read about in books and nobody told me of these horrors, et cetera. Well, and they were being told the exact opposite of what they actually encountered. You know, they were told that that was not going to be anything and then it was... A huge resistance force. Right. The Argentinians are all are all conscripts, right? They don't have any experience fighting. We're going to, like, mop the floor with them. They're shot in the foot so that they can't run away. This is going to be a two or three day thing and we're going to be done, right? So, you know, they were excited enough, but they also thought they weren't going into something that was going to be a real challenge. And then I think the adversity of the geographical location, the weather... The distance from their logistical and supply lines. Uh, I mean, they ended up walking 50 or 60 miles across East Falkland because in one of the famous incidents, uh, one of the commercial ships that was actually loaded up with supplies was sunk by the Argentinians. And so all of a sudden they found themselves missing a lot of the trucks that they were going to use and troop transports, etc. So, 
yeah, I think a lot of this conflict was a rude awakening uh, for these soldiers. Yeah, they really did not prepare them well. And that's part of what Lawrence talks about in later years after this, especially now. He talks about a much wider variety of or a much wider range of his frustrations around this whole thing. And I think that is kind of the crux of the issue with this is that I think they wanted to tell something that would grab people and they wanted to tell this guy's particular story and they weren't able to reconcile those two things in a way that would appeal to outsiders because he is so fucking unlikable in the whole film. Mm -hmm. I went and read a lot about him afterwards. I was like, okay, now I I see what's going on here. I see why these things are happening. But because we were just shown these flashes with no explanation, I was like, I don't know why I'm supposed to care about this. Hey, shit in your bed. Sorry, not sorry. Oh, God. And that. And and some choices they made are just are just wrong. Just no, you didn't need to tell me about that, actually. Yeah, that Thank was, you. Yeah. <laughs> Bit unnecessary. <laughs> Even if it happened, I mean, I get it, but no, like I'm, I'm, I actually did appreciate the, the close relationship that he had developed over this time with his bowel movements. <laughs> I am being a little flip about it, but it's, it's also sincere. Like that's a, that's just a part of being a person that you very seldom think about unless something goes wrong. It seemed to be like this thing that he, simultaneously then began to notice and enjoy, but also it became a problem because he couldn't control it and didn't always know when it was going to happen. Right. Right. I appreciated that aspect of the story because it's one that you don't think about and doesn't make it into the movies very much. Right. And you know what I mean? I, I think had they shown more combat, there's another aspect of what you're talking about that also probably would not have made it into that film. But if you watch uh, one of the good documentaries that's on YouTube online about this, one one of the things the soldiers pointed out. So, again, this is the southern hemisphere. So in April, we're heading into winter here. It's the end of fall, beginning of winter. So there was actually a layer of snow on the ground often. It was very cold. And again, as their logistics started to get messed with from the combat, one of the things they were running short on, especially during this, during this famous yomp that they did. At first I was like, what in the hell does yomp mean? <laughs> and I, <laughs> I, yeah, I remember him, him saying it in the movie and I was like, I don't know what that fucking means. Thank yeah, you. I wrote it down and did some research and there's a, I'll probably include this image into either the preview or the cover. There's a very famous image of a command, a British commando with the union Jack on his pack and I think he's labeled a, a yomper in that famous image. And it, it, that image ended up kind of representing the Falklands War. You know how every war has like the one famous image for one mm-hmm. side. Yes. Even one of the monuments to the soldiers in the UK is like a bronze statue of that dude. And then they put a real Union Jack on the statue, as you often do with monuments like that. So yomping the word... In the Marine Corps and certainly in the U.S. military in general will be humping, which to civilians doesn't help explain that at all. But what it means is hiking with a pack and your kit and all your gear. So going on a hump in the military means you're humping all this gear and taking it to wherever you're going. In their particular case, this 
uh, Yomp was, you know, 75 plus pounds of gear in the winter where they were somewhat unprepared in terms of gear for it, 50, 60 miles across this island. And to get back to the point I was trying to make earlier, reference BMs, water is one of the things they were running short on. And so one of the easiest ways to get water is they would dig into this peat and eventually water would kind of well up into the depression and it was black and murky and gross looking. And they had disinfectant tablets. So basically they would just take the water, which was gross and muddy and whatever, but they would disinfect it so that it'd be not deadly at least, and they could drink it. I was going to say, peat bugs make mummies. Like, don't drink that water, man. That's mummy juice. Yeah, so that water gave them a lot of dysentery and diarrhea, and so these guys were trying to trek across this island, you know, having to stop and empty their bowels. And, and of course, as anyone knows, when you have that kind of issue, you're also losing even more fluid. So dehydration became a huge issue, so... Uh, again, I don't think a movie is probably going to show that, but there were a lot of issues with... Uh, so that's what was going on in that scene where that kid literally almost dies that he saves. They're digging those holes in the peat moss. And I was like, what are they doing? Why mm-hmm. are they doing this? Mm-hmm. And then the one kid apparently is... I don't know. It's like, did he give up? Was he drowning? Did Was he having convulsions? He was drowning in it. Yep. Yeah, he was. I think that's what it's meant to be. Is he's he's sick and he falls into it and gets it in his mouth and into mm. his lungs, and that's what they're trying to do. That's like when you see Colin Firth kick the kid in the back to like get his heart started again. Right, right. I was wondering, I was like, why are they digging? There seems to be no reason, and they seem to all be digging the same kind of thing, but it doesn't seem to have any purpose. So, what is happening here? Yeah, I didn't know what was going on with that kid, but like. Yeah, it looked bad. Yeah. There was a, a lot of this movie is like, man, I don't know what's going on here, but like, look serious. Yeah. Shit looks terrible. I don't want to be there. It does not make you want to join the infantry. That's for sure. No. But, you know, and it's it's funny. You said something, Dan, that, that I agree with. It's I know it sounds like I'm advocating for a more boring retelling of this story. <laughs> you know what I mean? But like. Just because a story is not unique doesn't mean that it's not worth telling. And this guy's story has some distinctive features to it, mm-hmm. but it's not a unique story of a person who was idealistic and came from a long military tradition, got into the war got horribly wounded, found out that it wasn't what it was all about and then came out of it learning that like, Oh, nobody gives a shit about you after you've been a wounded vet. Mm -hmm. Like that is not a unique tale, right? This is their version of it. Yeah. But I think there's also something to be said for telling it in a way that supports that structure. And sure is reasonably indistinguishable from maybe 200 other movies out there as far as its arc or its structure or whatnot. But like you're saying there, these are some fairly universal themes mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and you don't need to reinvent the wheel to tell this story. Right. And maybe you probably shouldn't. Yeah. And it's interesting to see kind of what they leaned into and what they didn't lean into, because I think overall people who have seen this film and people who were around when it came out, this film has an anti-war feel to it. I mean, we've talked about this before, right? 
hard to make an anti-war war film. Kind of no matter how you depict war, no matter how horrific you make it, it's always a certain percentage of the audience that's going to be attracted to the concept. But if we just look at the history of the release of this film, the British government was pissed. They thought it was too anti-war and not supportive enough of British troops. And so they were trying to censor it and trying to get the BBC to not release it, et cetera, et cetera. When I think the consensus, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Katie, if you read anything different from what you read about uh, the critics saying, but the film has a relatively neutral stance in the sense that it's showing you a bad experience this one particular soldier had, but it doesn't really make the British or the Argentinians out to be the bad guys. It doesn't give you any historical background on why anyone is there. It doesn't really cast judgment on whether this war was a good idea or not. This particular war, right? The Falklands War. Yes. It makes some comments on war in general and on the treatment of veterans and on what life is like getting PTSD and being partially paralyzed. Sure. But I don't feel like they lean too hard into anything other than just what happened to this guy, despite the reaction from the government. I would agree that I think a lot of it is fairly straightforward in the retelling, but telling the story of somebody who has been vocally critical about the war and how it was handled in the aftermath is kind of the political statement. Mm -hmm. And if this is the guy whose perspective that we're taking, he says in the film, it wasn't worth it. Mm -hmm. So that might've been what they took issue with, but also at the same time, like if you don't want to look like you're treating your vets like shit, maybe don't treat your vets like shit. Yeah, for sure. I just think if you wanted to lean into the war is kind of pointless and this short little war, 8,000 miles away from our homeland was particularly pointless. I wish that they had either made the choices or had the budget to show some of the bigger picture, more horrific events that happened, such as on, on both sides, such as the British submarine that sank one of the Argentinian uh, destroyers. I think it was like, you know, 300 people died right there. Some of the British sailors who were rescued from ships that were hit by bombs from Argentinian aircraft were horribly disfigured and burned. And there are several interviews with soldiers where the guilt that they feel from surviving is because when the captain made the call to abandon one of these sinking ships, they barely were able to pull the guys who were on the deck and on the bridge and on the surface of the ship out. They knew the ship was sinking with a couple of hundred guys underneath that they weren't able to save where there was oil spilling and fires and explosions. And they had to watch those ships go down with all of their fellow sailors on them. For the shit they got from the government for making this film, I kind of wish they had made a little bit more of a statement. It's it's kind of like Katie says often about film where she's like, dude, you're allowed to have an opinion. Make your fucking statement, like get your opinion in there. I mean, it's possible that because Lawrence wasn't necessarily anti-war altogether after this. I, I mean, I think if you watch his interview, it's more like, well, I think war is terrible and we should avoid it as much as possible. And the government should expend, you know, all diplomatic avenues, et cetera, before we actually go to war. 
And then if you do go to war, you should make sure that you have the structure and the resources to take care of veterans after the fact. Because while you can see Argentinian soldiers going back home and this guy, uh, Horacio Benitez, who was a conscript, specifically tells stories of going back to Buenos Aires and going to a bar and getting a beer and looking around and being like, and all these people are just having a good time like nothing happened. Like nothing fucking happened to these people in Buenos Aires. They're not worried about the war. They don't know where the fuck the Falklands are. They didn't see all the shit that I saw. And I think the British soldiers also felt the same way. It's like Thatcher's government was doing great. So the Tory government was doing great after this. They won all these political points. And so I think it was easy for Lawrence and a lot of these soldiers to look around and be like, man, we kind of got played. Yeah, you totally did. Which, again, is not specific to this war. It's just a general theme in wars. The BBC very much disavowed that this was a political statement. And just to clarify, Katie, because you mentioned this earlier. So there's I didn't know this. The BBC, because it's government funded, is not allowed to make political statements. Is that the rule? Yes, I think it it, it depends on the government in the same way that it's British state television. (laughs) And NPR or um, uh, PBS or something like that. Like, they're not allowed to necessarily make, you know, pointed political commentary or propaganda that is contradictory to what the government wants is kind of the thing. Mm. There are archaic rules governing it that I'm not familiar with because, you know, I watch I don't watch a whole lot of the BBC, some, but not a lot. But so anyway, so Richard Eyer, the director, contradicted the BBC's views, stating, I would feel the film a failure if it is not deeply political and adding, I'm happy to say I don't think the film is balanced and I hope that it is considered one of its advantages, one of its virtues. Interesting. Him and Lawrence very much did feel that this was a political commentary on, in particular, the Thatcher government's complete failure to take care of its veterans to really acknowledge the costs of this kind of a war and in particular i think this film is talking a lot about ptsd Mm -hmm. in the 80s they didn't necessarily have the vocabulary for that but it's clear from you know what we see lauren's experience and his behavior especially for those of you who are not familiar with traumatic brain injuries um tbi as they're more commonly known often cause pretty severe mood issues and personality changes. And a lot of times those personality shifts are more aggressive. So you see Robert just hates the nurses, hates the doctors, Mm. hates these people. You know, the physio torturers is what he calls his physiotherapists. These people who are legitimately just trying to help him be able to walk again. You know, he actively hates them. And he talks about his own inability to, like, handle his shit. You know, I just get so mad. I just get so mad sometimes. You know, I can't help it, is what he says in the in the film. And I think that's where they're really leaning, because that does seem to be Robert Lawrence's, like, what he thinks of as his legacy is trying to help soldiers who are dealing with the mental trauma of warfare and bodily injury, you know, find their lives and go on as best they can and the lack of vocabulary at the time to talk about these kinds of things is part of the issue because it's if you don't have the words to say what you're going through and obviously you can see you know he's not getting the treatment nobody wants to talk to him about this nobody asks him about it except for these very few people like mr kobayashi pete postlewaite i was like oh my god 
good. Yes. And he's the one who asks. And it because he's the government's man, it comes across as salacious mm-hmm. instead of therapeutic. You know, you get a couple people like the the major nurse mm-hmm. who's in the, the hospital that he escapes from. She's seen combat. She's invested in helping him as much as she can. But, you know, those average everyday night nurses who are like just trying to talk about their personal lives are like, dude, it's not your business. Mm-hmm. Not your business. And it's like. Then stop talking about it in front of me. <laughs> it's it's understandable from both perspectives. You know, like they're just trying to live their lives and do their thing. But also he's been horribly traumatized and no one is giving him space to acknowledge that. And that's the true tragedy. And I think that's what I was able to finally like really drill down and connect with in this film is by the end I was, okay, this is about PTSD. Mm -hmm. And the one thing that was aggravating for a lot of the film as time went on, I appreciated a little bit more because whether it was intentional or not, the fact that you feel embarrassed for him, frustrated by him. You feel bored. Like you feel most of the things that Lawrence is actually feeling in this very, very long bed rest based recovery where, you know, we're getting these details of, you know, he's shitting the bed. He's really hungry. They won't let him eat. He's in a lot of pain. The nurse won't give him anything because his chart says he's had everything that he can right there. The, the major nurse comes in and is like, you don't get it. You have to lay here because if you move around too much and try and walk around, you could have a seizure. If you have more than one of those, like you could cause, you know, irreversible damage to your brain. Like you're in a really feeble condition. Like you should be dead right now, basically, is is kind of the theme. And yeah. somehow you made it despite the fact that he was treated as a low priority medevac at the beginning, which when you think about triage, I mean, even the man himself, Lawrence himself says, yeah, I don't have any hard feelings towards the people who made the decision to let me sit around for six hours because there were people with dangerous, but more survivable injuries that needed to get taken care of before me. Right. That's the nature of triage. That's the harsh truth of triage. So he wasn't upset that those decisions were made. But at the same time, it is often highlighted throughout the story just how precarious his situation was and is. I couldn't find any details on this, and I don't know for sure. But I feel like in the brain surgery scene where they're initially first stitching him back up from his injury. Yeah, were those pictures of the actual dude's head? I believe so. I wouldn't be surprised. Because like I said, he was closely involved and was the consultant on this. Because it certainly wasn't Colin Firth's head. It's the way it was edited makes me believe that they were. Because you you see the scene and you see the guy in the background with the camera and the flash. And then I don't even know if they show you the flash. But then there's two or three scenes where it just goes to a Polaroid or whatever of the brain injury. And I'm like... Mm, this even looks like a different color and the makeup looks slightly different. And I don't see any reason for that other than the fact that they actually interspersed real photos of his brain injury in the film with the video. Although the the makeup was really impressive on Colin Firth's head. The makeup won two different awards. Yep, that won the BAFTAs, which is the British Oscars, essentially. It won Best Single Drama, Best Makeup, Best Film Cameraman, which is pretty awesome. But Firth was nominated for Best Actor, along with Costume Design, Film Editing, oddly, Best Original Television Music. 
Well, you know, and then it did, uh, Firth did win for the Royal Television Society, which I assume is like their Emmys mm-hmm. for best acting. And that was the other makeup design. So, I mean, this this was very poignant, yeah. I think, for the British populace. Let's give it up to Shauna Harrison for winning two different uh, makeup effects awards. Good job. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. The uh, I have to say that for the thing that kept me going through watching this fucking movie was Colin Firth's performance. Mm-hmm. I wasn't sure about it at first. How about you? I have to know. I have a pretty big crush on Colin Firth. So like, okay, I was, I was kind of here to like, see what he was going to do. And like, I had a hard time understanding some of the dialogue, especially in the beginning. Like, Oh man, it was rough. Like Dan was saying, but as it went on, like his performance is really kind of what pulled me through this thing because it was a very engaging, very committed performance, really nicely done. I thought it that was easily the highlight of the film. If you watch it, watch it for Colin Firth's performance. If you're watching it for like to watch a movie, you know what I mean? If you have read up on Lawrence and you, you want to see the the film portrayal that he was involved in. Sure. It's, it's not a great movie, but it's a really great performance. And I liked it a lot, especially the physical performance later as he's trying to, as he's going through physical therapy there was not a second where I did not buy that he was halfway paralyzed and relearning how to walk. It was, it was on a, and his eye was looking in fucking different directions and shit. Like, well, and even his muffled speech was probably a a part of his, you know, left side of his face, maybe being paralyzed. Yeah. I mean, it was a, it was on a, my left foot level of performance in terms of a a person showing that they're partially paralyzed. And I got to say, which Liam brings this up all the time. I don't really see a bad performance in this film. Yes, Colin Firth for sure takes it away and he is the the focus of the film as it's told from his perspective. But there was a lot of good sort of um, subtle British acting here that I There's think... There's a lot of good stiff upper lip happening. Yeah, they're, like his parents. I liked his parents a lot. And, and oh, th- for me, they're the best. For me, they were the best Part of this film, the most poignant moments come between when the two of them are talking to each other mm-hmm. about the situation that they're in. That is some of the most like subtle acting that we get. I mean, I, I just I don't disagree. Colin Firth is giving a great performance. He's doing his best. But those moments between the two of them are just like, especially the second one where his dad is like. I'm so proud of you for bearing up. And I was like, yeah, dude. Okay. Because she's <laughs> explaining to him about why, you know, Sophie, his girlfriend, maybe, maybe isn't going to stick around at like 19. Yeah, she might have moved on, bro. Yeah. And, and it, that's okay. She doesn't have to stick around for this. And like, you could just see the dad's face that's just so shocked. Who wouldn't want to stay with my son? And it's yeah, just. Yeah, the dad's kind of clueless about a lot of shit, I think. Mm-hmm. Yes, I get a lot of a lot of that of, OK, you've you've just kept yourself in the dark about a whole certain subsection of humanity because, you know, he's in the Royal Air Force. He's doing his thing. He's got his place in society and that's what he's worried about. Oh, yeah. But it, I mean, it felt accurate. It did. Yeah. Oh, yeah. For an older British man who served in the 50s, you know, I mean, from the, from all the way from. Getting ready, he's combing his mustache with care. You know, that ridiculous Oh, mustache. I love that. 
Paul looked at me while we were watching it, and he was like, am I supposed to be doing that at night? Because he has a, a, a glorious mustache. Oh, you're absolutely supposed to be. He's like, do I need to get a little tiny comb, too? I was like, only if you want to, honey. You're fine. Again, he's mostly understated until there's the point where I think one of the doctors is not addressing him with the proper amount of respect or whatever. And he's oh, yeah. like, Squadron Leader Wentworth. Do I know him? I don't know whether you know him or not. But you now know me. And I think you ought to get off the edge of that table when introduced to a senior officer, even though retired. Go, go, John. Good for you. <laughs> it's all very subtle and it takes a second. You have to pay attention. But again, not really any bad performance in the film. No, no single actor that kind of took me out of it. Like, oh, that's not realistic or whatever. But this is a, and this actually works as a nice segue to one of my biggest problems with the film that isn't the editing. Oh, are you? Maybe it's part of the editing. Is your bedpan coming out? Is it time? Yeah, it's time for me to get my shit and pants on. <laughs> and it deals with the parents a little bit. And that is that it took me a substantial amount of time to figure out who the fuck those people were in relation to this dude. <laughs> yes. Who the fuck are these people that they're talking to in the house? Are you talking about the people in the first scene? Well, yeah, so any of these people. So, like, the people in the first scene are Hughes' parents. I don't okay. think they are. I, that's what I thought. I thought they were Hughes' parents. I still don't know. I still don't know. I'm pretty sure they're <laughs> Hughes' parents. I thought they were, but then halfway through, they're talking to him like they're not his parents. The daughter doesn't know either one of them or didn't want them to meet them, them plural. She didn't want to interact with them. But it was like really a weird, it didn't feel like they were Hughes' parents about halfway through. Yeah, I was confused, too, but I'm thinking that's who it was. But I thought there were some other people who were Hughes' parents somewhere else in the movie that I thought were Robert's parents. But then we met Robert's parents, and I'm like, who the fuck are these parents with the house and the thing? Okay, hold on, hold on, hold on. So the two older people and the girl. The ones who talk about how they're killers. Uh Yeah. That's kind of how I differentiated them. Right. They're the stubs. So is Hugh a stub? No, no, no. No. Hugh is McKessick. So so who the fuck are these people? Why are they at their house? Why are they telling them this story? Why don't they want their daughter to meet them? I have no idea. And what the fuck is wrong with Hugh? Like, I feel like there's this weird unresolved baggage with Hugh Mm -hmm. that the movie has. Okay. So are they going to have a conversation where like, they either become cool again or decide that they're never going to be cool again. Or are they just both going to go off with opposite people and be like, he's always been jealous of me. I think it's meant to be the men who the divide is meant to be the men who experience the combat because Hugh's company, from what I could understand, and I'm probably using the wrong terminology, but I understand Hugh and his, his dudes go after (laughs) you and his dudes. I might be using the wrong word here, but the dudes. <laughs> I, might, I might not be using the technical term, but <laughs> he and his dudes go after Lawrence. And what I took away from it is that they get there after, you know, things have already ended and to do the mopping up mm, as it okay. were of the conflict. And so he didn't see any combat because Lawrence got there like just in time to be oh. part of, you know, the big final moment. And so that's where the conflict between the two of them comes in because in the beginning, or I don't even know if it's in the beginning in one of the scenes that takes place in the early part before Lawrence goes to the Falklands, 
and he says he's going to go, you know, he's he's excited about signing up for this job. Q is telling everybody about how, oh, he wants to participate in all kinds of warfare. You know, he wants to go to the jungle. He wants to go here. He wants to do that. He wants to be a professional soldier, like in the past or whatever. And that is, I think, supposed to be some kind of display of jealousy, mm. or at least on Lawrence's understanding. I okay. do wonder, is Hugh, when he tells Lady, who I thought was his mom and is apparently not his mom. Mrs. Stubbs. Mrs. Stubbs. He tells Mrs. Stubbs, you know, oh, he thinks I'm jealous of him. Why would I be jealous of a man who only has half his body? And I'm like, well, that's a bit callous, dude. But yeah, so I just went through the cast and the only Stubbs in it are the two parents and the girl. There is no young man who's a stub. So, like, that would have made sense, right? Oh, it's a soldier who died and they're visiting his parents right. because he was their comrade. I don't see that anywhere. That would make sense. That would make sense. Yeah, no, it's just I like, drove out to your house in the country to, like, I don't know, tell you this story and then leave. Yeah. So, unclear to me. The only thing that I can really get out of, like, the purpose of that interaction is that they're sort of showing how the older generation is getting this feeling about the younger generation going to war, that it's like warfare has changed and it's not the chivalrous British thing that we used to do, which it's never been, of course. No, it wasn't in World War II either or World War One. Right. Go read about the British in Palestine in the 1920s if you want to read some horrific treatment of civilians and all kinds of other atrocities. But besides the point, I think the idea there at the end of the interaction is these guys aren't soldiers. They're murderers, you know, and I it felt think very Vietnam, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. As an American, that was kind of the lens in which I saw it of like, OK, yeah. And I, I, I think that part of the story and that perspective is also being told in the story that he tells about bayoneting the Argentinian soldier mm -hmm. Oof, where right. it's pretty graphic. I would say his retelling of the story is even more graphic than us actually seeing it happen later on at the end of the film. I mean, it's graphic enough, but again, in real life, he killed 14 Argentinians in that battle. That's a lot of people. Or no, I thought it was 14 Argentinians and then he kills three more with his broken bayonet at the that very end. That sounds about right. And why was he running around with two rifles like Rambo? I'll get to that in a second, but yeah, okay. that's, a, that's a good point. Yeah, let's 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 put a pin in that for a second. But, you know, you you think about close quarters combat and, you know, very obviously, if you read about war, like there's a difference between dropping bombs from 20,000 feet. You can certainly have PTSD from that experience as well, because your imagination fills in the blanks on what the weapons you are dropping are doing. But to be stabbing someone to death up close and personal, and even worse, to be stabbing them with a half-broken knife at the end of your rifle is about as intense as it gets. While they're asking you in your language not to do it, please, if you would, sir. Right, and I think that scene really encompasses the juxtaposition of sort of the politicians, right, and what they're making these soldiers go do. They can be very detached. They never have to see this blood. They never have to interact with all of this. They only use it for their own gain. Exactly. The sort of unasked question in the film about 
why the fuck are we even here? And is this war even like a just cause? Like, should we even be here? Like, what are we doing? There's nothing even on this island, right? All the way down to this intimate level of Lawrence doing what he's been trained to do, which is kill people in this, you know, really gruesome scene that he also describes, which I'm sure gives him nightmares and PTSD. He's asked about it in that interview, too. If you watch the BBC or whatever interview Mm -hmm. with, with the real Lawrence, he talks about that. Oof. And, you know, I, that was a good choice, I think, to put that in the film. That part of it made me question where his PTSD was coming from. Mm-hmm. Would he have come back with PTSD if he hadn't been shot in the head anyway? And I think he probably would have. I think so. Yeah. I mean, those are intense experiences. Not to mention that, again, there's lots of things we don't see on screen that we know those soldiers were witness to. People being lit on fire with phosphorus grenades. Uh, This Argentinian who's interviewed uh, Benitez tells a story of them being entrenched. Um, I think it might be this tumble down battle, but it could be a separate battle. I'm not a hundred percent sure. And he tells a story about a phosphorus grenade, which is a a really, really high temperature burning grenade is what that does. Mm -hmm. And one of their soldiers getting hit with a phosphorus grenade and being lit on fire. And in the moment, and this is a post-war interview, he says, and to be honest, I didn't really care whether he lived or died or like I wasn't too concerned about the plight that he was basically burning alive. My concern was that he was lighting our entire position and that the British could see where we were and were about to start shooting us and killing us. And so we were trying to get him the fuck away from us because he was like a human torch lighting our entire position. And I was like, man, only in war can you get into these situations where someone lights a human being on fire and your first concern is... And you're mad at the guy on fire. You're mad at him for being on fire <laughs> yep. because he's lighted. And I'm not trying to belittle the person's no, yeah. opinion or anything. I'm just saying that's how intense and extreme logic becomes in war. It's understandable under those conditions. It's totally understandable right. that that would be your reaction because you are literally in you know survival mode. Mm-hmm. And the thing is, is that like in that instance... You know, you can't even shoot that guy to put him out of his misery and solve the other problem. No, that's the worst thing. Right. He's still going to be on fire. That he's just sitting there lighting your position. And phosphorus is going to light everything it touches on fire. That's also a chemical weapon. Isn't that like a war crime now? Mm, No, phosphorus weapons or phosphorus grenades are still a thing. Yeah, maybe Mike, I can chime in for us exactly what the appropriate tactical use of phosphorus grenades are. Now, is there a difference from like phosphorus and white phosphorus? Because I've heard that white white phosphorus is like, I don't know if it's how it's deployed or whatnot, but. Yeah, Willie Pete is what those yeah. can also be called. I think those are the same thing. And they also, you can have artillery shells that have that in them as well as grenades. So, uh, but someone with more experience than us will have to chime in and tell us what the you know, tactical use of that is. I don't know. That's a good question. We'll have to look into that. Oh, uh, yeah. I don't know. Liam referenced the guns akimbo thing where he's holding two rifles. Yes. Part of me makes me think, oh, this is kind of ridiculous Hollywood, whatever, even though this isn't a Hollywood film, but you get what I'm saying. Shepperton Studios or whatever, wherever they filmed. Right, right. I've also read before in, in trivia where one of the one of the things pedants talk about when people are using two guns is like when you're firing two guns, 
you can't aim two guns at the same time. That's just not how eyesight works. So I guess if you're firing on fully auto, you're just launching twice as many rounds down range, or you're just having a moment of whatever. It's what Catholics call the spray and pray method. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) A little sex joke for the show. Let's not forget that Robert Lawrence was an advisor on this. So could they have done that in the scene without him actually having done that in real life? Question mark. The reason why I think it probably did happen, whether it's like the smart thing to do or not, is because the scene where he is shot, which just like everything else in this is a bit, feels a bit over the top and cheesy. It's a little theatrical. Yeah, theatrical, the yeah. camera choices, the sort of like their... The focusing on his feet as he stumbles about. They focused on his feet for like 30 seconds, you know, where I'm like, okay, what kind of time are we doing here? Because this isn't slow motion. And if you pay attention, before he gets shot, he gets to the top of the mountain after, again, if you know the history, having killed 14 Argentinians and this and that and the other. And he says, Yeah, I had to pause it because I was like, what the fuck? I have never seen a war movie that has that kind of line in it. But that's what the guy said. It's in his interview. He said that right before the sniper shot him in the head. So I was like, wow. Okay. So some of, I I feel like some of the things this film suffers from in terms of the depictions of the combat are one of those things where the director and the writer made a choice to actually make it accurate to what really happened, as opposed to something that we've run into before in films where directors make a choice to say, you know what? That's too ludicrous. We're actually going to change that and make it less accurate because it's going to seem more realistic and i think his injuries his his end scene where he gets shot is a good example of that where you could rewrite that scene and make it more poignant and less almost corny and unreal feeling but you're making the choice to pull away from reality and not stick to what actually happened people i've seen comments from people who have read his book and they say The film really follows his book pretty accurately, which is another good question. I wonder how much where the timeline is at in the book. Yeah. I wonder if the timeline idea came from the way the book is written. That's possible. That is a distinct possibility. But also, I think I'd have more patience with a movie where it opens with this dude in a in a in a murder frenzy running up a mountain, having killed all these people shouting, isn't this so much fun? And then getting shot in the head and then seeing some kind of like trial and tribulation and redemption arc past that instead of like watching all of this and then cutting back to, Oh, isn't this such fun? Right. hundred percent. And now it's time for the breakdown where we talk about what the objective of this film was, whether it was on target or not, and whether we liked it. Katie, what did you think? This is definitely one of those, and we've done movies like this before, where I watched the film and I was like, what the fuck is this? And then I read about the film and I was like, okay, makes a lot more sense now. Based solely on watching it, I would have had no idea what their objective was because it is so all over the place. But after reading and doing the research, it's so obviously to tell Lieutenant Robert Lawrence's story and to illustrate both the very deep specifics of this one man's experience in a very small war 
when you look at the grand scheme of war anyway, and the universalities of his experience that can be stretched across all conflicts like this. So, was it on target? I think in some ways, yes, but so much of the editing really works against it. And, you know, the thing that I kept coming back to from about, I don't know, a third of the way through this film is the one that it reminds me of the most is Jacob's Ladder, which is another fairly experimental film mm-hmm. about a veteran who is suffers extremely from PTSD. And I'll leave it at mm-hmm. that if you haven't seen Jacob's Ladder. I personally watched it about three days uh, before I had my kid. Oh. So I was hugely pregnant, super emotional. I think it was New Year's and my ex is like, let's watch Jacob's Ladder. That'll be super, super fun, right? And I was like, I don't know what this is about, I guess. And I think he ended up falling asleep and I'm just laying there like, the fuck am I watching? This is upsetting. And so I've never seen it since. But as I am watching, you know, Lawrence's struggles through dealing with the extremely obstinate medical bureaucracy and trying to figure out exactly like what the hell is going on? What's going to happen to him after this? You know, does he have a pension? Is he still part of the military? Is he going to get to, you know, rejoin the Scott Guards? That all kind of rings back to Jacob's Ladder, which is a much more hallucinogenic film, I will say, than this. In Jacob's own, like, trying to figure out what is going on and what actually happened to him. I would say this is something that is going to have diminishing returns the further away you get from knowledge of what went down in the Falklands and especially from this particular man's experience. I think if you know a lot about that, like if I had known about that going in, which I don't usually do for stuff like this purposefully so that I can experience the film as a film first and foremost. But sometimes, like in this instance, I feel like I would have had a better experience had I known what the hell it was trying to talk about. So... It wasn't on target for me, but I feel like it would be on target for other people. And I bet this was super affecting for folks who watched it when it came out. Because everything I read said this was like advertised hugely before its release. Like 10 million viewers in the UK in one night is nothing to shake a stick at. Yeah, it's like what was wrong with those two people that didn't watch it? Exactly. They were the three dissenting voters on the Falkland Islands. They were like, no, yeah. we want to right, go to Argentina. Exactly. We're not watching your bullshit. <laughs> yeah, we don't <laughs> we're like this. watching this, this BBC bad. propaganda. Right. <laughs> right, exactly. And the rest were all the Tories, the few Tory statesmen who were, I'm not doing that. Did I like it? No, no, I didn't like it. <laughs> I like it better having watched it. I'm like, I'm glad that experience is in the past. <laughs> glad I had it. Because now I get to know about this very interesting man who went through so much and gives a very unique perspective on this. So many different things. The UK, small, ridiculous wars that are perpetrated because of pissing contests between countries. There's so much that's interesting about this conflict and about this story, but the film 
is just such a product of its time that it really gets in its own way. And I would love to see something that was done by a more better, a, 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 a more a, a director who isn't so bad ingrained in <laughs> no i because i don't know that richard Iyer is a bad director because i i think this is the only thing i've seen by him but someone who isn't so invested in making a something that's so fraught because this was so fraught when it came out it was a huge deal that the bbc made it and i can absolutely see why hollywood was like no one cares dude no we're not making that we don't care but i think it would be an interesting story that you could tell now that would have a bigger perspective and bring more audiences into this because like i said i i looked i double checked again there were 264 different press clippings that the national archives uh, set aside for the release of this film so it was such a big deal at the time it was released i would love to see something that could maybe appeal to more people to get this guy's story out because He's still alive right now. And I will tell you, one of the most interesting facts I read about him, he fucking went back to Mount Tumbledown on the 25th anniversary and was at the top and was like, I'm doing this. I want to see what this is like. And that's a man who's got something interesting to tell us all. But this movie did not do the best job at communicating it, I think. Liam, let's hear it. Oh, let's see. No, I think Katie was very much, uh, very much. Katie was on target with her <laughs> call of the objective. Obviously, it's a it's a movie very sincere in its intentions. I think its goals and its objective were a lot more clear and articulated than the movie was. The execution, not so much, but I think, you know, they, they, I agree. They wanted to tell this story in a time when it was still relevant and would have that impact on the populace when it still had something to say, you know, cause this is not long after the conflict. And so not long after the Thatcher government rode that conflict like Seabiscuit to a to a whole new glorious british right-wing future dan you should really uh, i really wish we could find a reason to insert merry christmas mark of thatcher clip in this <laughs> noted <laughs> <laughs> but yeah you know and it's and it's funny if i can go off topic for a minute like dan you said earlier that you didn't know if britain would have necessarily gotten involved if it hadn't been for the populace that was still there. But I also think that like, I don't know. I kind of feel like they probably would have regardless, just because it's like, they can't take that from us. It's ours. And this is, you know, this is, it was obviously politically expedient. Yes. I just don't know if they could have pulled the wool over their citizens enough to pull that off. Had it just been a bunch of rocks on this Island, that would have been tougher. Well, where do you think you get that wool? (laughs) (laughs) from the sheep well right but the sheep were brought by people the people were british subjects so like no sheep no right. people just yeah, rocks. No, I, I i honestly don't maybe they couldn't have maybe they couldn't have pulled it off but i don't know that that necessarily would have stopped them when the chips were down yeah it could have gone it could have gone the other way sorry not to like turn it into a discussion but i think 
had the government made the same exact decisions with zero subjects, like had Argentina just landed like a couple of boats and then planted a flag and be like, this is ours now, but it's back to us, you know, and had Britain invaded and had people died trying to take over this empty island. Who knows if that would have had the effect on the patriotism of the populace. Like it's much easier to justify going to protect British subjects who want to be protected vocally in some far off land than to just attack an empty place. This was a colony that was like made up of British people who had emigrated mm-hmm. to the Falklands and and their descendants propagated and, and lived there. This right. was not a situation where they had come in and necessarily like taken over an already populated right. area. Because nobody fucking lived there. It could have been a very different historical outcome and, and political repercussion after this. I did think it was funny that so much of this film was shot in Wales, which they all felt was a good uh, stand-in. A good stand-in for how shitty the Falkland <laughs> Islands are. <laughs> for the Falklands. I and mean, I was like, I bought it. That must be why they went there. They're like, oh, hey, it's second Wales. I've often said that in my lifelong mission to avoid the sun as much as possible, that I would like to have a summer home in the Falkland Islands and a winter home in the Faroe Islands. <laughs> And just like keep chasing the darkness from pole to pole. And this movie did not deter me from that. I have to say (laughs) it actually kind of reinforced some things for me there, but was it on target with its objective? I think it was. This is seemingly a perfectly good and valid depiction of, of Lawrence's experiences. And they could have structured it in a way that was better, but I think that it met their objectives by and large. So like I give it like a 75% yes on the, like a solid C on, on the meeting of the objectives did it more than it didn't. And I have to agree. I did not really care for the movie very much at all, mostly because of how it was made. I thought the, the camera work was shoddy. I thought the editing was shoddy and I think the narrative structure is crap and i don't know who these stubs people are but either draw some connection there or explain why they're there or maybe just write in a make it a different more relevant family that they're telling the story to i don't know got some got some flaws on it this one gonna gonna go ahead and say that i don't think that's a controversial statement but Yeah, that's where I'm coming down on it. Well, you guys are making it very easy for me to be concise, which is something I'm not good at. But uh, I think you really (laughs) nailed a lot of the points. I think the objective here was to show a very, very subjective experience from a veteran with PTSD, how the experience affected him and the government treatment of him. Again, all kind of from his perspective. I think most of the flaws in this film trickle down from the fact that it's trying to be too subjective, meaning I don't find myself often wishing for more timestamps or any timestamps and more exposition. But this film definitely left me wanting more exposition. I would have loved for someone to explain to me what in the hell is going on. Like you said, the stubs are a very confusing and out of place timeline where it took me forever to figure out what was happening. Sort of the flashbacks set up, the nightmares, the intimacy of the memories, 
And then the disillusionment and the aggressive behavior that you see from Robert Lawrence. Like you guys said, after having done some of the research and read about it, it makes sense in retrospect. But as a movie viewing experience, it was difficult and challenging. And thank God, I think that the second and third act are better than the first act in this film, because there were points where I was like, God, just when is this going to be over? Like it felt and like difficult and challenging, not in the good way. Yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah. There could be yeah. difficult and challenging and like a good in a good way when watching it. I don't need it all like fed to me, but right. Jesus. Yeah. Not in a satisfying way. So were they on target? I would say not for a modern audience, especially outside of the UK. I think it's probably aged poorly. A lot of this sort of maybe experimental technique that they were going with in terms of the bouncing around timeline. I, I don't know how well that worked in 1988, but again, this being popular in 88 in the UK and making sense to the people of that time, considering that the conflict was five or six years before this makes sense. So it was obviously successful at the time, even though I don't know how the cameraman won a BAFTA and how it was even nominated for best editing, because I definitely disagree with that. At least it didn't get nominated for music, because like we're watching them drive through the countryside, and I'm like, oh, so this is the music that Dan is going to have to use to play under my intro. Uh, except, except that it did get nominated for music. It did. <laughs> no. It absolutely did. I know. No. It, did, it didn't win, if it's any consolation to well, you. Well, that's good. <laughs> like I said, must have been a weak year at the BAFTAs. I Think so. Well, I don't remember whether that was a Royal Television nomination or whether it was a BAFTA nomination. But like the music, I was just like, this doesn't go with what I'm watching at all. I know. But it's really not going to go with my intro either. <laughs> I appreciate you thinking about the plight of my editing because that I is. Did. I always think about the plight of your editing <laughs> yeah. constantly. So, one thing I think about is in something that's more bigger budget and more technically proficient, but that is also kind of experimental. I kind of wonder how Dunkirk will have aged in 25 years, the Christopher Nolan film, because a lot Terrible. of people, a lot of people hate that setup already. Now I, I personally, I like the film spoiler alert, but that is a controversial film where a lot of people do not like the multiple timeline bouncing around edit of it. And again, I think, it's probably for people who hate that film, they're going to hate it more 30 years from now. So again, I'd have oh, to yeah. ask someone how they felt watching this at the time in 88, but yeah, I don't know. Not something that ages well and comes off a bit cheesy when there again, there's a good story to tell here, but had they pulled away from Lawrence and done a little bit of objective kind of like, here's the situation and here's what's going on back home and in the fog. Like, I would love to watch a version of this film that incorporates some of the history that we talked about, incorporates the political situation in Argentina, the political situation in Britain. I get it. Maybe that's not the budget that they had. Maybe that's not the film that they were going for. But that's a film that I could really sink my teeth into. Whereas this experience, for the most part, was boring, painful, confusing, and frustrating. <laughs> You'd like to watch the platoon of the Falklands War. Right. But for the most part, these are the feelings that Lawrence is going through as a character, as a person. So I was kind of like, all right, they definitely succeeded in making me feel like him, just for different reasons. And without having half my brain blown out uh, in combat. 
So did I like it? No, I will not watch this again. It was a relatively excruciating experience. And <clears throat> like Katie, I'm glad that I have watched it. This project is not always going to be fun every time. Sometimes it feels a little bit like homework. Sometimes we're watching something so that you guys don't have to at home. Other times we're watching something so we can try and convince you to watch it at home. But I will say, listen to the episode and listen to the history and the context and then wait for an ungentlemanly act because I think that that will be a better overview of the Falcons War. But will it be a better movie? I believe so. Even though fingers crossed, even though the IMDb rating is identical from having listened to another podcast about it, I think so. What are we doing next? Well, next we got a big one. We got a, a big old classic on our hands. It's our first foray into the realm of John Wayne War World War II movies, mm-hmm. and but it's not just John Wayne. It's John Wayne and friends. John Wayne and everyone else. We are doing 1962's The Longest Day, one of those famous 60s, 70s, super big prestige pictures that has everybody and their brother in it. So you get to see John Wayne, Sean Connery, Richard Burton, and a whole host of other people all do D-Day together. Who's the director again? There's three of them. Nice. Uh, like, it's, <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a huge undertaking. They're three or three or four. I think uh, Ken Anakin, who did the British exterior episodes, Andrew Martin did the American exterior episodes. Oh, wow. Gerd Oswald did uh French exterior episodes. And then Bernhard wiki uh, did the German episodes. Wow. Interesting. This is one of those where it was like different people. Like, you know, if I've seen this, I haven't seen it for a long time, but, there were a lot of fingers in these pies here. So. Wow. Uh, I have not seen it. Uh, Liam, you said you're not sure. When I was little, my dad showed me most of the John Wayne movies in captivity. <laughs> so I might've seen it, but it's not one that I've, I've gone back to. Katie, have you seen it? Yeah. I don't think I've seen this one. My mom wasn't too into John Wayne. I saw that was more my, my, uh, my grandpa okay. who, was in big into the Western. So he also loved John Wayne's war films. I'm very curious because I think it'll be a good thing for the project in the sense that it's coming up uh, only a few episodes after we covered saving private Ryan. So it'll be interesting to juxtapose two films that were, you know, 35 years apart on the D day landings. And while my, I read about the film a little bit already. And while my initial reaction was like, Oh great, John Wayne, like this is going to be rah, rah crap. However, uh, considering this was made, you know, not that long after the events, a lot of the people that worked on this film were not just veterans, but veterans of D-Day. So a lot of the advisors that they had and a lot of the people working on set kind of were able to give a lot of great advice on what to make it look like because they were there. So I think that's an interesting addition to this film. And yeah, I think we're going to have a great conversation about it. We're going to close out for today. Thank you guys for joining us. Our group on Facebook, the Danger Close Podcast Discussion Group, is approaching almost a 1,000 members. So it's really great to see all you guys interacting in there. 
Uh, the poll have closed out by the time this comes out, but we just pulled out our next listener episode, and there's, I think, like a good solid 100 votes in there. So I think last time I checked, A Bridge Too Far was in the lead, and The Bridge Over the River Kwai was probably coming in in second. We'll see if that holds Big up. bridge energy. Yeah, lots of bridges and lots of popular films that are very well known. But yeah, if you want, and those do not go out on the Danger Close page. Those only go out in the group. So if you want to vote on some of the listener episodes, if you want to participate in the discussions, hear people correct us, have people chime in, as well as our team that does all the extra posts on weapons and vehicles that we see in the films, go to Facebook and join the Danger Close podcast discussion group. If you want to hear us talk once a month about war-adjacent films, like sci-fi, fantasy, comedy, other stuff. Wes Anderson movies. Wes Anderson, James Cameron. (laughs) Star Wars. Also Star Wars. You can't... Yeah, our last episode was The Last Jedi. You can find that at dangerclosepod.com forward slash support, and you can sign up for only four bucks a month. Helps us make the podcast and save up money for equipment and editing help, etc. And it's a great way to support us. Uh, additionally, if you don't want to spend any money, but you still want to support us, please go to Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Leave us a rating and a review that helps more people hear about the podcast and find out about us. And thank you, as always, for listening. See you guys on the next one. Thank you. Bye. I have only one thing to say. You turn if you want to. The ladies not for turning. <laughs> and they brought their fascist boot boys, and they brought the boys in blue. And the whole trade union congress will be at the party too. And they'll all hold hands together, all standing in a line. Cause they're privatizing Santa. Merry Christmas, Maggie Thatcher. May God's love be with you.